Greetings. I appreciate you checking in to listen to our podcast today. I hope that you enjoy our lesson on the ascension of Jesus Christ. In all of my years in the church, both growing up as a pastor's kid in the denominations, as being a pastor in the denominations, and then after I became a Christian and being a pre preacher in the Lord's church, I cannot recall a single lesson or sermon on the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I may have heard those lessons, and I know that there have been chapter studies where it's been talked about, but there's not been a specific lesson describing and discussing why the ascension is important and why we must understand it and why we should preach from it. We should preach about it. It is a part of our doctrine, a part of our faith. Only Luke gives a detailed account of the record of the ascension in Luke chapter 24 and in Acts chapter 1. We know that 40 days had taken place since the resurrection. Jesus had led the disciples to the same general area from whence the triumphant procession began. You remember that triumphant procession, that triumphant entry into Jerusalem. When he rode a donkey into Jerusalem and the people laid palm branches and coats, their coats on the ground before him and shouted Hosanna to the highest and praise to him. In spite of the divine record of the ascension, there are those who today, like they do with just about everything, have tried to argue the historicity. That means the reality of the ascension of Jesus Christ. However, there are some arguments for it that I want to briefly touch on and give you the scriptures where they can be found so that you can look them up later. First of all, we learned that the ascension was predicted. In Psalm 110, verse 1, and in Luke 22, verse 69, it is claimed or recognized in the New Testament. Mark chapter 16, verse 19, Luke chapter 24, verse 50 and 51, and Luke and Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Now we'll read these as we go through the lesson, as we come to them, but we won't read them all right now. It is assumed in the New Testament in the doctrines that the apostles taught and preached as they traveled about the world evangelizing. In John chapter 20, verse 17, in Acts chapter 7, verse 55, in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 28, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, chapter 3, verse 10 and 20, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 4, verse 14, chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 11, chapter 10, verse 12, chapter 12, verse 2, and in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. This event is presented to us with scientific-like accounting or details, different than the imagery that we find in the book of Revelation. This is an imagery. These are eyewitness records, and that's a big fact, that there are eyewitnesses who wrote about these details and told about these details that are recorded in the divine record. No eyewitnesses at the resurrection, but there are eyewitnesses at the ascension. Nothing else can account for the cessation of Jesus' many appearances to the disciples in the days after his resurrection. We further learn from Scripture that after Jesus ascends into heaven, that while he is referred to many, many, many times, 
the references change. They change from what they were in the Old Testament and from what they were in the Gospels to something that's entirely different. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, and chapter 12, verse 2, he is referred to as a judge. As a defense attorney in Romans 8, verse 34. As a high priest or intercessor in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, for, verse 14. Chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 11. Chapter 10, verse 12. He is referred to as the exalted Lord, the Lord of Lords, supreme ruler over the universe. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. And Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 through 23. And we learn... From Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, that because he ascended, we too shall ascend. So let's read one of the records, one of the smallest records of this great and very important event. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 19, the scripture says, So after that Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father. In verse 20, And they went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord working with them, confirming the word through the accompanying signs. So then, here in this passage, is equivalent um, to the phrase or the cliche, on the one hand and on the other hand. This represents what the Lord did and on the hand, other hand, what the apostles did. Some have mistakenly concluded that because the title Lord is used rather than the name Jesus, this is a later addition to the text. Brother J.W. McGarvey believed that the phrasing in this passage means that the Great Commission was issued on the same day as the ascension of the Lord. We learn that the disciples went forth everywhere and preached the gospel. Mark ties into one neat little statement that the disciples remained in Jerusalem until they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they went everywhere. And Acts chapter 8 is the earliest recorded example that I'm aware of of the disciples leaving Jerusalem to go and preach the gospel. We learn from Mark that the Lord was working with them. What a great promise that is and great Comfort that is. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus himself says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, Jesus was with them confirming the word. Confirming the word is a reference to miracles, the miracle, miracles that the apostles did after the resurrection and after the ascension. Remember, please. But one of the great purposes behind a miracle is to demonstrate that the message that has been preached is in fact from God and is in fact the Word of God. In Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 53, it says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Led them as far as Bethany? This is getting pretty specific. I told you that there's some scientific detail here. Mount Olives is where Bethany is located. And this small mountain or hill is 
riddled with small fields that are basically level, good for a group of men to seclude themselves for prayer, for instruction from God. It's likely that one of these fields was used as Jesus made his part in speech to his disciples. And while he blessed them, he ascended back to the Father. He uh, arose from the earth while he was put in part in blessings upon them. Luke seems to indicate that the Lord Jesus arose from the ground by his own willpower. We learned that the disciples worshipped him after the ascension. This is the first record of worship to the risen Lord. They then returned to Jerusalem and began to meet in the temple praising God. Most scholars among us today believe that they continued to meet in the temple for several weeks, perhaps months, after the day of Pentecost even. This would be until persecution broke out uh, that they continued to meet and assemble in the temple. And then we read in Acts chapter 1. And different than what I have in your handout, I want to read uh, from Acts chapter 1 verse 1 all the way through to verse 11. There the uh, inspired historian says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them for forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now while he spoke these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. The former account that Luke, the historian, begins this, this record with is a reference to the Gospel of Luke. Historians tell us that Luke was more than likely a nobleman, a Gentile of noble birth from a Gentile city. Theophilus was actually a person, a real man. Uh, some have proposed some crazy ideas about who Theophilus was. I believe that he was a real human being. Uh, most suppose him to be to have been a wealthy man, a wealthy noble man like Luke, who probably paid Luke to do the research that was necessary to write the Gospel of Luke, to compile all of the evidence and the eyewitnesses, and, as well as the history the book of Acts, and then Theophilus would likely have seen to its publication. All that Jesus began to do and teach. This phrase cannot be absolute. 
Most of the time when I've read over this, I've read it so fast that it hasn't sunk in what's actually being said here. Luke says, Theophilus, I'm, I'm making an account uh, to you of all that Jesus began to do and teach. This can't be exhaustive because we learned in the Gospels that every Gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, as well as John, record some incidents, some teachings that the other ones did not. Every one of them have something that is singular, that is unique to them. They leave out something that the other ones brought put in. It cannot be absolute. We know this too from what John says in the book, end of his gospel, in John chapter 21, verse 25. And there were also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. What a way to conclude a biography of a great man. That there's so much that he did and so much that he taught that I can't write it all down. That the world's not big enough to hold it all. I suppose that's why, the, he, why Jesus had to go back to the Father. Anyway, Acts is a record of the continuation of the redemptive plan of God that involved and began with the incarnation, continued through his teaching, his miracle working, his life, ended at the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. Jesus is involved in God's providential care in our world today. This phrase, refers to the miracles and acts of benevolence and, and, of course, includes his suffering, his death, his burial, and his resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit. The idea that Luke writes in that he was taken up speaks of the ascension that occurred 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. The commandments that Jesus gave include, if it's not a direct reference, it at least includes Jesus' commandment to go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them who believe uh, and teach them the commandments that I have given you. He presented himself with convincing proofs. That is, he appeared over a 40-day period, and we've spoken in time past of some of those appearances that have been recorded in Scripture. It is said today that to deny the existence of Jesus after his resurrection, is to be completely disengaged from history. One man said it's easier to deny the historical facts supporting Julius Caesar than those supporting the reality of Jesus after his resurrection. And to this we agree. To this we give a wholehearted amen. Jesus taught the disciples during those 40 days about the organization, the spread, and the edification of his church. He set an example for his believers, for his followers, and Luke very clearly answers some false doctrines that seems to have been growing at this time. Namely, that Jesus taught some mysterious confidential teaching to his disciples that he didn't teach to anybody else. But Luke plainly declares that Jesus' teaching was concerning the kingdom of God, how to get into it, how to stay in it, the disciples were gathered and waiting. Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 5 referred to a period of time of a few days before the ascension. Jesus gave much of his teaching 
during these 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. In one of the later assemblies, in one of the later times that Jesus was teaching his disciples, he instructed them specifically to wait in Jerusalem until you are endued or empowered from on high by the Holy Spirit. He reminds them of the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to take a brief moment and talk about baptism right here. There's different baptisms in the scripture that are referred to in the New Testament. And men today have taken these concepts and have exploited them and have begun to teach a false doctrine and have false hopes of God's promise to fallen mankind. The first baptism that we read about in the New Testament is that of John's baptism. John's baptism was an immersion in water. It was for the repentance of sins. But John's baptism gave way to the baptism of the Great Commission that we read about in, in Matthew chapter, 18, chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. The promise of the Father included, included salvation. It included this baptism that we read about in the Great Commission. Many people have taken the concept of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and have tried to apply it to the promise of the Father. I think that that's not a good application. I think that it is incorrect to apply it that way. The baptism of the Holy Spirit that occurred on the day of Pentecost, that occurred in Acts chapter 10 when Peter was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, enabled the disciples to speak in languages that they had never studied, enabled them to proclaim the full gospel as the Holy Spirit brought to their minds all things that Jesus said and did. It enabled the disciples to perform miracles, to authenticate their message. That's the purpose of a miracle. This baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, like that which occurred on the day of Pentecost and occurred again at the house of Cornelius, is not available today. Now there are three other baptisms in the scriptures, in the New Testament. Not specifically mentioned, one of them is, uh, that are not specifically mentioned in this verse. A baptism of suffering, a baptism of fire, and baptism of the Great Commission. That's my term. All Christians suffer. We just need to be ready for it. We need to expect it. That's a reality of our life. We're promised that we will suffer. But we're also promised that God will give us grace and strength to go through that suffering if we stay faithful to Him. And that is the key. We must stay faithful at all costs. Even the cost of our own death as many of our brothers and sisters in the first century set the example, set the bar, set the bar high for us. We have to be faithful like that. The baptism of fire that many people speak about and, and pray for, they don't know what they're praying for. They don't know what they're asking for. Baptism of fire is a reference to judgment. Baptism of fire is a reference to the sentencing of judgment. It is a reference to hell. Jesus promises that some will have baptism of fire because they reject God, 
They reject Jesus Christ. They reject the church. They reject the gospel. They reject the truth. And the only thing that is left for them is baptism of fire, the judgment to come. Then we have the baptism of the Great Commission. I think that this is what Jesus is speaking about here. The baptism of the Great Commission was not available at this point. Just 10 days before Pentecost, it still was not available. But at that point in time, men and women, if they were going to be baptized, they had to be baptism, baptized with the baptism of John. The baptism of the Great Commission, I understand, to be the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father included the baptism of the Great Commission because it is that baptism in which we find the remission of sins, in which we find the adoption of sinners as the sons of God, and which we, in which we find the inclusion of all who will obey that form of doctrine into the church that Jesus built. In my opinion, the baptism of the Great Commission is the greatest baptism that has ever been given, that will ever be given, and men and women everywhere should long to be baptized with the baptism of the Great Commission. I thank God for it, because by it, all men everywhere are eligible to be a part of the promised inheritance of those who will inherit the glory of the kingdom of God. Not many days hence, Jesus says, this promise is going to be realized in you. Ten days, ten days, this is going to happen. The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection, after the resurrection. And when they had come together, I don't believe that this is another day. I believe that this is the same day that the commission was given. I believe that Mr. McGarvey, Brother McGarvey is correct that the ascension occurred on the same day that the Great Commission was given. And that can be argued. I, I can't be dogmatic about it. It's just that's where I am right now in my studies and in my understanding. They were asking him. Now, the disciples always were asking Jesus questions. Some of their questions were good questions, questions that we should consider. Some of their questions were foolish questions, questions that we should not even uh entertained for a moment's sake but they were asking him this question lord will you at this time restore the kingdom to israel they appear on the surface to be asking jesus about the carnal kingdom the temporal carnal kingdom but i want you to notice something different not so much about their question but about jesus response Jesus does not respond in the same way that he had responded to similar questions earlier. Earlier, he responded almost angrily, rebuking them, correcting them, chastising them for their foolishness, for their lack of faith. This time, he responds to them gently and kindly with love and understanding. He checks them by saying, your time is soon, but not yet. And then he includes the promise of the Father. Now, I understand that the disciples had to wait for the day of Pentecost, for the baptism of the Holy Spirit to empower them to preach the gospel. 
They were not ready to preach the gospel. They were not ready to preach the kingdom of God because their understanding of the kingdom of God was incorrect still. They thought it was going to be something that was going to be here on earth. That Jesus was going to set it up, that he was going to stay here, and that he was going to rule over it. They misunderstood some things about the kingdom still at this point. I think their understanding had become clearer since the resurrection, but they still were faulty. They were not ready to preach the kingdom because their understanding of the kingdom was incorrect. Um, it has been suggested that the disciples were asking Jesus if he was going to inaugurate the kingdom of God here and now. But they had to wait till the kingdom came, the heavenly, that is an earth, the earthly kingdom, came on the day of Pentecost when then they were authorized to preach that kingdom. Now when he had spoken these things, the scripture records for us, they watched, I'm sure their minds were blown away, their mouths were agape with wonder, while he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Placing the two accounts recorded by Luke, the one in the Gospel of Luke and the one in Acts chapter 1, together, it appears that Jesus ascended back to the Father while he was speaking. He is taken up. Again, we know there were eyewitnesses to the ascension, but not to the resurrection. Jesus had to go away. You might put your thumb in this place. We'll read it and refer to it in detail later in John chapter 16, verses 7 through 10. Verse 10 in Acts chapter 1 tells us that while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Luke records them as men. The description of their clothing and their message makes me infer, makes me think that these were actually angels that stood there. I can imagine that the disciples were wondering, oh, after the cloud goes away, he'll still be there because he did this before when he talked to Moses and to Elijah. But he wasn't there. I'm sure that the shock overwhelmed their consciousness. And maybe they didn't even see those two men until these two men spoke to them. The message of these two men tells us a lot about Jesus and a lot about his second coming. They said, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. They address the disciples regarding their place of residence. Note that all the twelve, except for Judas Iscariot, were from Galilee. Five of the twelve were from one small town in Galilee, Bethsaida. It reads in our versions as though the heavenly strangers were correcting the disciples. As though to remind them that, hey, you have a job to do. You have a responsibility. You need to be going back to Jerusalem, to the place where you're told to wait for the promise of the Father. Here we learn about the ascension. We learn much about the second coming that we're going to talk about in detail later. So why does this all matter? Why does the ascension matter? Why should we talk about the ascension, I think, more than what we do now? First of all, I want to note with you that it was prophesied of in the Old Testament. It was prophesied of in the Old Testament. Uh, we understand what a prophecy is. A prophecy is somebody in the distant past foretelling something accurately that is going to happen years and years to come. Daniel prophesied about 500, maybe 600 years 
before Christ. And his prophecies are precisely accurate. His prophecies concerning the church are precisely accurate. His prophecies concerning the kingdoms that were going to uh, come and go. The Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Grecian, and the Roman empires were precisely accurate. His prophecy regarding the ascension of the Lord Jesus back to the heavens was precisely accurate. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says, I, this is Daniel speaking, was watching in the night visions. And behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. But Daniel's not the only prophet, nor is he the oldest prophet to talk about the ascension. About 400 years before Daniel, if my timeline and my memory is correct, David was about a thousand years before Jesus Christ. And David says, Psalm 110 verse 1, we made reference to it earlier. A Psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. We learned that these prophecies were fulfilled in the events that occurred 40 days after the resurrection. Let's look at the fulfillment of these events, the fulfillment of this prophecy. In Acts chapter 1 verse 9, the scripture says, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Therefore being exalted, Acts chapter 2 verse 33, to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Again in Mark chapter 16 and verse 19. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. What a perfect parallel and comparison of the prophets of the Old Testament foretelling us some event in the life of Jesus Christ that should uh, strengthen our faith, encourage us in the storms, and it should give us resolve to be faithful. If God can prophesy something that's going to happen a thousand years or more with such precise accuracy, why should we not believe him? Why should we not trust him? Why should we not with total abandon serve him and worship him and follow him? And, I, and secondly, we see that the ascension is important because of what it teaches. It teaches us about the Lord's return. We made allusion to this just a moment ago. In verse 11, these two men uh, that we think are angels said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? It's like they're saying, Hey, stupid, wake up. This same Jesus, you know, he's going away for a little while, but he's going to come back. The same one's going to come back. The one that you've talked to and walked with for three and a half years. The one that's performed so many wonderful miracles. The one who died, who was mercilessly beaten and cruelly tortured. Who was buried in a borrowed tomb. And then who resurrected in three days. Yes, he's gone away and he's going to be gone for a little while. You're not going to see him. You're not going to be able to touch him. You're not going to be able to sit down and have dinner with him around the table. But you know what? He's coming back. He's coming back. Just in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. 
We learn who is coming from this passage. It's the same Jesus. The one whom they knew, the one who we read about in the New Testament Gospels, the one who is the Son of God, the one who is the promised Messiah. We also learn how he's coming back. Some have supposed that the cloud that carried Jesus away was the Shekinah glory that led the people of Israel through the wilderness. So it appeared as a cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. Uh, the Shekinah glory that settled on the temple as Solomon consecrated the temple that he had just built. The Shekinah glory perhaps that settled around Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. We don't know. Some have supposed, and it's a good, uh, good idea, I suppose. We learn how he's coming back. In the clouds. Through the air. Just like he was carried away. Some have supposed... We also learn that Jesus' return will not be a secret. Books have been written, novels have been written, and they've been bestsellers around the world, translated into various languages, that propagate the idea that Jesus' return is going to be a secret. It's going to be unknown, and suddenly there's going to be all of these disappearances. And nobody's going to know what happened. That's not what the scripture says. Yes, he's coming in a cloud. Yes, he's coming unexpectedly. But it will not be a secret. And there's something else that you need to know today, my friends. The disciples were not expecting Jesus' return. Men and women across this world, around the globe today are not expecting Jesus' return. But the disciples were forewarned. They were dull of understanding. You and I today also are forewarned. Let us not be like the disciples and be dull of understanding, but let us be prepared. Let us be ready for when the Lord returns because it will be unexpected. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul, waxing very eloquent, says some beautiful things about the Lord's return. We read there, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. I don't see anything secretive about that. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Skipping down to the next chapter, chapter 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2. Paul says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Many will be unexpected, but they will not be wondering what has happened. They will know that Jesus has come back. The ascension marked the completion of of Jesus' redemptive work here on this earth. This is one of the biggest reasons, I think, that this is so important. And we don't have time this morning, to, today to delve into this and to dig into this and to explain it thoroughly. Perhaps we could do a whole series of lessons on what all this means. But very quickly, I want you to know that when Jesus ascended into heaven, it marked the completion of his part in the work of redemption. 
He, by ascending back to the Father and sitting down at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us today, provides the sinner the ability to be saved so that he or she, the sinner, can have eternal life with God. This is why it was necessary for Jesus to ascend back to the Father. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus has completed his work, and it seems here that he's longing to go home. I'm done. I've done what you've sent me to do. We understand from the book of, the, of Hebrews, from that letter, that the job of the high priest in the Old Testament was never done. It was something that had to be repeated year after year after year. And we also understand that these high priests were imperfect, fallible men, just like you and I. They had to cleanse themselves before they could go in and make sacrifice for the sins of the people. And they had to do this year after year after year. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of animals were slain over the process of time for the redemption of people's sin, of the Jews' sin during those days. But Jesus Christ, when he came to earth, suffered and died as the propitiation, as the go-between, as the stand-in, if you will, for the requirement of the old law that blood be shed for the remission of sins. We understand that blood had to come from a perfect sacrifice, one in which there was no blemish whatsoever. This is typical of the antitype of Jesus, who was perfect, who was without sin. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12 tells us, Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. As powerful as that imagery was, it was not really sufficient to completely remove sins. The writer there says in verse 12, But this man, <laughs> I love this, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for the sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He was able to go and sit down because his work was done. He was able to go and sit down because the sacrifice had been made for the sins of the whole world to be washed away. The ascension is important because it tells us that Jesus' work on earth in accomplishing the redemption of mankind is finished. The ascension is important because it opened the way for the Holy Spirit to come. And oh, what a blessing this is. I said that we'd get to John chapter 16, verse 7 through 10, and this is where we are. As you're turning there, the ascension allowed the Holy Spirit to come to perform His part in redemption. This is important to us because as long as Jesus was confined to the earthly body, He could only be in one place at one time. But since He ascended back to heaven to the Father to be at the right hand of God, God unleashed, God sent 
the Holy Spirit to do his work pertaining to salvation. And the Holy Spirit is not confined because he's spirit to one location at a time. He can dwell in all Christians. And when you're baptized into Christ, that is a blessing that is promised to you. His indwelling in Acts chapter 2 verse 38. I think that's what he's talking about there. In John chapter 16 verse 7 through 10, the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come. The Helper is the Holy Spirit. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will, listen now, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. The Holy Spirit will empower you to live for Jesus. Now, how does the Holy Spirit convict us of sin? Through the Word of God. The Word of God tells us what is wrong, what is right. It gives us a moral standard to adhere to. It tells us that these things bring separation between us and God. And the Holy Spirit's job is to direct open and honest hearts to the scriptures which tell us how to live. Of righteousness? Well, the same way. The Holy Spirit directs us through the word of God in telling us how we are to live to please God. The Holy Spirit living in you can and does help transform you into the image of Jesus. The Spirit will help you win people to Jesus as well as helping you grow individually. Sometimes we try to take too much in the, on ourselves in the role of evangelism. And we need to leave the Holy Spirit to do what He is supposed to do. Our job is to plant and water. Plant and water. That's all we're supposed to do. And then we leave it. We leave it to Jesus. We leave it to the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus is seated next to the Father, the church of Jesus Christ is called to reach the world with the help of the Holy Spirit. The helper, according to John chapter 16, is the Holy Spirit. And he was instrumental, remember the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, in the creation of the church. And he is instrumental in the salvation of mankind because he works through the word of God which brings faith. Think about this. Jesus says, if I do not go away, the helper will not come. If the Holy Spirit had not come, there would have been no Pentecost. Think about what all that means. There would have been no Pentecost with its miracles and wonders. And as awesome as that is, I think there's more. There would have been no Pentecost with its birth, inauguration, of the church, which is the pillar and the ground of truth. There would have been no Pentecost in Peter. Rather than preaching the first gospel sermon in the church that Jesus built, would have went back to fishing. Nothing wrong with fishing, I guess, if you like that sort of thing. The church would not be established. But there's more. If the Holy Spirit had not come, men would still be in sin. 
we would not know of righteousness and judgment. But because Jesus went back to the Father and His grand purpose has been fulfilled, men are convicted of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Not just some men, but all men. At least they're eligible to. Because the Helper came, there is now no difference between Jew and Gentile. That line of demarcation, that line of separation, it's obliterated. It's gone. That ancient once sanctified uh, prejudice has been erased. And now, now all men everywhere are commanded to repent. One last point. The ascension of Jesus allows him to perform the work of intercession on our behalf. Jesus is not sitting in heaven watching baseball or reading books or watching TV or watching a ball game. No. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 tells us, Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The word intercede here is in a very comprehensive sense used to denote all that Christ is now doing for the justification, sanctification, and redemption of his people. Seated as he is on the right hand of the Father, clothed with omnipotent power and authority, he is ever ready to plead for those who have been cleansed by his blood, ever ready to defend them against all the assaults of their enemies, and in a word, ever ready to make all things work for good to them who love him. John tells us in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. When you fail, you're not a failure. When you lose a battle, you're not a loser. When you stumble, you're not alone. You have an advocate with G in Jesus. He is our advocate before God. A defense attorney of sorts who defends us before God, who pleads our cause before God. As a Christian, Jesus is always in your corner. You can always turn to him because he's always seated at the right hand of God the Father. This has been Mike Bolton with Live Like Jesus. I pray that you have enjoyed our podcast today and that you've been edified in your work and in your worship as a Christian. May God bless you richly.